From Equality Arizona, you're listening to the Arizona Equals Conversation. I'm Gene Woodbury, and each week on the show, I talk with one of the quarter million queer people living in Arizona. It's my goal to represent as many of those experiences as possible, and if you're interested in being a guest, I want to talk to you. You can fill out a form on our website at equalityarizona.org stories, or just email me. I'm Gene at equalityarizona.org. Today on the show, I sit down with Stephen Kingsley. He's running for school board in Tempe, but this isn't a conversation with him as a political candidate. He's a neurodiverse trans man, and I found that we really had a lot in common. I'm autistic, I'm trans, I'm in politics, but beyond that, I think we think about a lot of things in pretty similar ways. And part of that comes from our shared experience of being homeschooled. It was really fascinating to talk with him about education from those shared perspectives that we both have. I loved our conversation that we got into about curiosity and taking risks. And I really don't want to spend too much time in the intro getting ahead of that because it's really just worth listening to the the actual conversation. So with that in mind, I'll let Stefan introduce himself and get the episode started. Hi, I'm Stefan Kingsley. I am a neurodiverse person and educator and who knows what else because I'm interested in so many different things. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for being on the podcast. I think it's, it's really fun to talk to people who are in politics. We get a range of people on the show. I know that you're running for school board. That's something a lot of people don't pay attention to. Mm-hmm. How long have you been involved in education in general? Um, For over 15 years. Most of my experience in special training is working with English language learners. So I've had the privilege of being able to um, teach so many students from different countries, which I absolutely love. Um, English teacher by trade. And then, yeah, teaching is something that has always made me really happy and just working with students and building those relationships so is teaching something that's in your family how did you kind of discover that yeah there's kind of a fun story behind that my dad has been a teacher for I want to say 41 years now oh wow and uh you know that conversation you have when you're growing up like hey what should I do with my life you know my dad noticed um, how I like to help my younger brothers and sisters or some of the other younger people that I would go to church with. And he would say, you'd make a great teacher. And I looked at him and I'm like, Dad, you're a teacher. Like, I don't want to, you know, do what you do because <laughs> it's not cool when you're younger, you know. Yeah. But when some circumstances changed in a job and uh, they had outsourced my department and I was looking for a job. There was a position in an English language classroom available in Mesa, which was the school district my dad taught in. And so I took that position and I was in charge of giving the initial testing for placement for English language learners. So this student is proficient, you know, where should they be placed? 
And the teacher I was working with was awesome. And she found out that I was thinking about possibly going into teaching. She said, really? Well, tomorrow, this is the vocabulary that we're doing, so knock it out. <laughs> Go ahead oh, and teach. Just, it's your lesson. Yeah. Oh, wow. I was like, really? Like, tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, when I got up and I started working with the kids, like, every cell in my body came alive, and I just felt like, wow, this is my calling um, in one form or another. So I love educating people. What industry were you in before? Um, well, quite a few. Okay. I was homeschooled through high school. Okay, me too. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah not a lot of people have that experience. No. So I ended up taking um, the state GED um, yeah. at 16, and I've worked two or three jobs ever since. Okay. Um, I do live with autism, and that was diagnosed when I was a bit older, which I'm thankful for because it really confirmed a lot of things, but then that also meant that I struggled a lot until that diagnosis. Because you didn't have the tools at your disposal. Correct, yeah, yeah because I wasn't identified and I wasn't able to work with um, any therapists or anything like that. I really had to kind of depend on my own coping styles, some that were healthy, some that were not as healthy. Um, because there's so much pressure to, to, uh, the term is to mask and really kind of blend in. And I, um, started taking college classes part-time because of that. Um, I tested into the lowest math and, uh, reading comprehension class offered at a community college. Um, but it's in the Maricopa County system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, um. Mesa Community College. Okay, yeah, I love MCC. Yeah. And I wanted to start there because I knew that I may not be where I was supposed to be. And that was because of working full time. So I started in the food industry. I worked in the health industry. I um, went to technical school to become a medical assistant. I thought originally when I was going to go to college, like, okay, I'll do nursing or I'll do, you know, be a doctor. And then I started taking chemistry, <laughs> and I was just bored. I, I'm sure I probably could have done it if I It just wasn't myself. as interesting as he wanted it to be. Not at all. Yeah. So just decided to go part-time and kind of focus still on working so that I could pay for school. Mm-hmm. And, oh my gosh, when I was at ASU, I worked for parking enforcement, worked for dispatch in the police department there. I've just done a lot of different things. My students always used to joke like, Mr. Kingsley, what have you not done? And I'm like, <laughs> that, that list is probably shorter. So yeah, I graduated with my bachelor's at 29. And I was just happy to have that done before 30. I was constantly berating myself, you know, about the fact that I even got it done so late. Um, because I come from a family of eight kids. And a lot of my siblings had completed college earlier, so... Where are you in the eight? I am right smack dab in the middle. <laughs> and I actually have a twin. Oh, wow, well. okay. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, when did you get your diagnosis? For autism? For autism, yeah. At 40. At 40, at 42, okay. yeah. That's a long time to wait, especially going through that whole process and potentially, like you're saying, kind of kicking yourself for not being faster. Mm-hmm. I think that most people with autism or whatever the language I think that people choose to use, I, I often just say, well, I'm autistic. Mm-hmm. And I know some people like 
different things. But for, for any of us on the spectrum, the pace of our lives is just different it in is. a lot of ways. It is. And I'm thankful for the fact that, I mean, when I was reflecting, I did have a lot of tension in my body, though. I'm very... Um, I was trying to describe it to one of the school counselors at the last high school that I worked at. And with sensory things, it, it's like everything visually and um, audible, as well as smells, like all of those are really heightened and everything in your environment comes rushing at you at one time. Yeah. And it's like, how do you process that? How do you deal with that? When it comes to processing conversation, the um, psychologist that I was working with that diagnosed me said, I have about a 20 second delay. Like, and it's hard sometimes for people to, to catch that, yeah. but I do. And then, well, I scored probably the lowest on like the social skills, you know, cause I can't, it's very hard for me to read body language, facial expressions, anything. Yeah, I, I um, remember when I had a whole assessment, I had scores that surprised me mm. in terms of just being like, oh, I didn't realize I was, I had that much of a deficit in mm-hmm. that area. I think a lot of that comes down to masking, like like you were talking about. I think it kind of revealed also that we don't really have a good way to assess adults. They yeah. used a lot of the things that they will use for children. Thankfully, my mom is um, still living and she she has a great memory about things, but then they also interviewed and, and did, had my other siblings do tests as well. Yeah. And it isn't necessarily uncommon for someone on the spectrum to also have ADHD, which right. I also have, and then um, to be diagnosed with um, a mental illness, I guess, if you want to call it. So I do live with bipolar as well. Mm. And one of my neuropsychologists kind of explained part of the reason why sometimes that was exacerbated was because of the fact that I didn't have the services that I needed. So in other words, my coping skills, it's, you know, there's a lot of education that still needs to be done on bipolar and mental illness and how that all works. But yeah, neurologically, just the way my brain is wired, understanding that I'm autistic and whatnot, I wish that it could have been identified earlier so that I could have started the healthier patterns that someone has to do right. th- when they have bipolar. But I'm grateful now I'm starting to do those and, you know, with medication and, mm-hmm. you know, Um, but it's also given me a lot of insight for when I work with students. So autistic empathy is a whole nother subject too, which is fascinating, right? Because someone who's autistic uh, portrays empathy in a very different way. And for me with my students, I would um, just one look at them. Mm -hmm. Um, I would usually greet every single student every single day. I would shake their hands and just one look in their eyes and I would get a feeling and a sense of exactly where they were and what it was that they needed. And um, sometimes eye contact for me is hard because of what I feel when I look into someone's eyes. Because it's overwhelming on some level? Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's mostly because I, I have a feeling of what they're feeling. But mm-hmm. the words for when I describe it and or reach out, you know, to help. Sometimes it's not as obvious to others that that's what I'm 
trying to do. <laughs> Students would always get it, though. And I think the way that I also tried to cope in school specifically helped me be a better teacher. I think I kind of realized like I needed to break things down into very concrete steps. I needed to figure out where I was more confident and what I was good at as opposed to where I struggled. So for example, in math, I already knew that I sucked at algebra. <laughs> as like in fact, I was listening to a um I can't remember if it's a TED Talk or a podcast of Temple Grandin, and she mentioned that she's horrible at algebra. Mm -hmm. And I started crying. It was like all this energy oh, wow. was released, <laughs> releasing out of my body, just being like, it's okay yeah. that you're horrible at algebra and that you have strengths in other areas because it took me four times to pass my intermediate algebra class. And this would be an algebra class that students would take in high school, you know, this, because right. again, this was at the community college, just entry level. Mm -hmm. And sometimes my students, when they would be frustrated with algebra, I could really relate to that. So I could share my story about yeah. that. Or some of my kids, I, I would just see, you know, their brains worked a little bit differently. I could work with their strengths and it worked so much better because it's often typical and especially in my experience, to beat myself up for all the stuff that I don't know how to do or that I don't do well or that I can't possibly blend in, you know, yeah. because of my autism. So I think it's just given me a lot of insight in how to work with students and, quite honestly, what is good for students who are on the spectrum in the classroom is good for every single student. So Yeah, kind of like the curb cut idea of accessible design is better for everyone. Absolutely. I think what I've found is that because I have to be more conscious of the way I process and categorize information, it's something that helps me to be a better communicator or educator. Not that I'm an educator now, I've, I've taught a little bit in the past, but it helps me to convey that to other people. And it's just because I have to be more conscious of it on my own time for my own sake. Yeah. Well, I would argue that you are an educator, maybe not formally, but to go through that reflective process, to be able to sit with yourself, then put it into words where you can at least give someone some insight. Yeah, yeah. you're definitely an educator. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your experience being homeschooled, oh, being homeschooled by a teacher. I assume your dad was pretty involved. He was somewhat. So okay. my mom was, um, he really kind of let her be the one to make the decisions about the curriculum, you know, okay. he would check in for sure. My dad was a music teacher, though, so his expertise was a little bit different than, you know, like right. your core subjects. Um, my parents are also very religious, so they were very concerned about the curriculum in particular that was being given at in the public schools. So between that as well as the fact that I was started around fifth grade showing that I was really having difficulty with learning mm -hmm. and... Um, would often be more depressed, understanding and aware of the, you know, the fact that I didn't fit in with a lot of people. So my mom told me that the combination between the two, that's why she chose to homeschool me. Um, and some days were more like school and other days were pretty free. <laughs> my uh, twin and my brother, who's 16 months younger than I am, which we're really close, we always have been, we would 
write plays. We would, you know, build sets for our plays. Oh, yeah. My, my brother and I, we built a suit of armor. We would choreograph fights all the time, you know, <laughs> stuff like that, which I guess is a different type of learning. So Absolutely. Do you get to bring any of that, like, less structured learning into your work as an educator now? Yes, I would. Um, Project-based learning is something that I'm a huge advocate for because you really can allow the student to take ownership of their learning and you can really work with their interests. Mm -hmm. So that's essentially what I did when I would pursue those projects, even if though it was sort of more free form, there wasn't that strict structure to it there was no rubric like you have to do this and that you know we kind of created it but students are more engaged they're more motivated they're more interested and curious to ask like hey how did you think about how did you think of that you know right what was your process so I think when people can get involved in the process they motivate themselves to learn more and that's a whole virtuous cycle in Mm -hmm. a real way Um, You mentioned your parents were religious. You've come out. Is there tension around that? Yes, very definitely. It. I grew up in a very sheltered home. So, um, but I always knew that uh, sexually I was attracted to women since I was really young, and I'm always someone who values authenticity. I would talk to my parents about that since I was really little. And I have uh, an aunt who's been with her partner longer than my parents have been married. I want to say like 54 years. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it really is. And she she took one look at me and she's like, yep. (laughs) (laughs) She's probably a lesbian, you know. (laughs) And um, so my mom really, there there was kind of a shift then, I would say, towards pushing me into more of the... Uh, what they perceived as the feminine role mm. and the way women should dress and speak. and um, But I still knew who it was, you know, that I felt, which wasn't even that, but scared stiff to say anything more. Right. When I finally had the courage to tell my parents as well as my um, one of the church leaders who my parents really listened to, that I don't believe they're acting the way God would act. They um, use a lot of fear and manipulation and control and took away choice completely. And ironically, me making those statements, they said, we've, we've had enough. Oh. So I was excommunicated from the church that I was attending. Um, my parents didn't allow me to talk to them for almost 10 years. I couldn't talk to or relate to my younger brothers and sisters. Like, it was very intense. I was allowed to email my parents. But um, I would say in 2015 or so, my parents did reach out. Um, They had started attending another church. I think they started becoming more aware. Like, that wasn't healthy. That's not where it should be. Yeah. And expressed really deep sorrow and asked for forgiveness, let's, can we build relationship? But there was a lot of trauma there. And then understanding that I'm autistic, it made complete sense why my entire world was just different. 
because everybody that I would communicate with, interact with, felt comfortable with, was connected to the church in some way. And I would spend time with them two or three times a week. Everything revolved around that, and then all of a sudden it was gone. All at once. Yeah. 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 So, I, but I, I would say in 2018, 2019 is when I met the first transgender man I've ever met. And sat down with him because, like, my heart inside was, like, really happy. I was like, oh, my gosh, there's someone who feels like me because I never really felt like I fit in as a lesbian or whatnot. I just knew that I was attracted to women, so, you know. And um, we had a good conversation. He was um, more private about his journey, which I completely respect. But that's when I really started saying, wow, I should probably look at that because it coincided with um, some really intensive therapy that I was having, which just brought all these things up. So, yeah. I've noticed that I think um, autism diagnoses are often delayed for people who are like assigned female at birth. And that can lead to a lot of problems, Mm -hmm. obviously. All of these things get gendered in an interesting way that can be difficult like for me, I didn't get my diagnosis until I was in my early 20s, which, you know, I was someone who easily could have been diagnosed at a younger age. I was like the classic target for let's get this kid in to get diagnosed. Mm. It didn't happen, which was fine. But after that, I started to process some of my other mental health issues. I started to figure out all of these gender feelings I was having. I transitioned. And now it's like, well, I actually just kind of am in a weird place in terms of how all of these different things mesh together because I untangled them all in some kind of weird sequence and (laughs) now I'm just out here being myself. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really interesting to hear your experience with actually a lot of the same Mm -hmm. things in in a very different way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of complexity is how I like to say it because they do interact and they are hard to separate, right. which is why, and I think that's something that I understand and maybe you also in that sense of like trying to put something in a box. When you think differently and you're autistic, first off, you're like, think of putting, I think of putting someone in an actual box and I'm like, well, that's like a coffin, <laughs> like that's pretty dark, you know? Yeah. But there isn't one that fits or that can describe everyone and yeah. so I think one of the dangers might be too hard, harsh of a word but I'm going to use it one of the dangers of using individual labels whether it's for gender whether it's for um, mental health or yeah in a way where you hold on to that label and try to put one mass description on it you know it's you can't generalize any of them no I don't think so and a lot of people who don't identify that way and or are not autistic it's hard for them to understand and they get overwhelmed I have to remember all these different ways pronouns and like referring to people and you know like just being very and you're like no just ask the person you know but I think that really comes from that I kind of blame psychology, <laughs> like labeling, you know, that this is, this is this, you know, which the behaviors that come out of it are, you know, such, and yeah. then everybody just assumes, you know, 
that bipolar or anything else looks the same. When Which it just is doesn't. not remotely true. No, not at all. People with experience like the ones we have, um, we get over-medicalized. We are in people's offices all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think what I've thought about in the past is that sometimes the only way we can get care is by really committing to the, the label. Mm-hmm. Like, this is my diagnosis. I've got it on a piece of paper. I can show it to you. I can mm-hmm. get the things I need. I can get the tools I need. And sometimes being challenged on like, that's not who you are mm-hmm. is really scary because it's like, well, but I need it to be mm-hmm. because I need all of these things mm-hmm. that are a consequence of that. That's a fascinating way to put it. I like that. At the, When I received the diagnosis, even though it was at 40, mm-hmm. my entire body relaxed though. Like it was just this, I always knew, you know, right. and then when I would reflect all of these markers, so to speak, of, oh, well, this is I struggling in math and, you know, just my frustration of like, oh, my gosh, like, why can't I get this? Why is everybody else getting this? Or my moments of being completely distracted, you know, being because what we were learning was not interesting. So I'm going to think about what I want to think about, right. you know, <laughs> um, also being all over the place. Uh, spelling or sequential order, things like that, that were really difficult. Yeah. All of a sudden, these moments, especially of really hard struggle, started just aligning. And I was like, wow, okay, that explains it. So there was some relief in the label. Yeah. But then, what do I do now? You know, which is what anybody. I think who gets a diagnosis of any kind, it's like, well, what do I do now? Yeah. And where did you start? So that was in, let's see, I'm 42 now. I want to say I'm almost 43. So I feel like that was in 2020 when I got that diagnosis. And then oh, I actually yeah. started transitioning um, in October of 2020. So there were so many different things going on. Early pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of research. I did a lot of sitting with myself and saying, you know, does this resonate? And I relied a lot on talking with my twin or people that knew me really well. And some of them were very relieved to hear as well because I have a tendency to just start a sentence halfway through or not complete a thought or just, you know, um, misinterpret text messages. Oh my gosh, I hate text messages because um, even though I'm horrible at social cues and I can't, you know, and someone's expressions to read them, at least from what I've tried to pick up growing up, I have a little bit more of a sense. Yeah. But things like that became more clear. So then they didn't, take it as personally you know so it gave them a framework in a similar way to the way it can give you a framework yes but then you have those people that question like well are you really though because you've done seemingly quite well for yourself you know you can't actually be autistic it's right yeah when and a lot of times um even at work so i'm currently not teaching because i 
can't work in the school district where I'm running for school board. Oh, right. Um, that's just a conflict of interest policy? It is. Okay. Yeah. And and that's okay because I'm working on my dissertation right now and I want to start my own consulting company and I'll probably be working with either school districts or um, business in, in, institutions. Uh, my focus is going to be diversity and inclusion and really sort of helping school districts or businesses on a policy level or just their structure, interview structure, whatever it is. So I felt like it was a good transition to kind of, you know, start going into some of that work. And um, I lost my train of thought. Well, Uh, I think it's... Someone at work. Sorry, I I found it. So I'm working uh, just sort of as a temporary job at a car dealership. And one of the guys, though, you know, I forget if I was slower to respond to something or, but he kind of looked at me funny and I said, well, I'm autistic. So maybe, you know, I just confused something. And he looked at me and he's like, you're autistic. I couldn't tell. I was uh. like, well, thank you. And he's like, so you're good at math. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not. And he's like, oh, but autistic people are good at math. And so there's all these preconceived ideas or maybe yeah. bias or whatever you want to call it, you know, yeah. there that come with the diagnosis. And I think that's been interesting to navigate, you know, but I've tried to be pretty open about it because then, like I said, I'm an educator, so yeah. it's an opportunity to kind of tell them. Yeah, I think I, I like that perspective. It's, it's always an opportunity to educate, mm-hmm. which I think goes also into pursuing, you know, running for office and, and, mm-hmm leadership like that it's also about educating in a lot of cases yeah and I value that visibility yeah. when you know meeting my first transgender man and really kind of exploring myself and masculinity that I had really repressed and it just reminded me of how important it is to be just just that visibility is yeah. and I appreciated that while he still stayed somewhat guarded about pieces and aspects of his story that mm-hmm. he was still open to share. Mm-hmm. Because while there are plenty of moments to educate, it also sort of becomes a burden or it can become a burden to start there every single time. Yes. Like, oh, no, no, this is how autism works. Or no, being transgender yeah. is, you know, fill in the blank or bipolar, whatever it is, ADHD. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I'm someone who, as soon as I'm interested in something, I like Google the crap out of it, right? So then, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much I'm like, yeah. and then I'll go down rabbit holes and then kind of come back <laughs> to the original thing I was researching. But I've always wanted to be really frustrated and be like, why don't you Google this? Or why yeah. don't you look this up instead of putting that on me? You know, which, um, and I say that understanding that as a white man, I still have a certain level of privilege because I think my my students of color also feel that burden. Yeah, I've heard that perspective from a lot of people. I don't mm. know if you're familiar with it, but there's a website called Let Me Google That For You. No. And it just redirects to the Google search result for whatever the thing is you're talking about. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty great. I should um, come up with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems like... Not a lot of people who are autistic and trans and have to do all that constant, like, 
here's how you can think of me as an actual person, work all the time, are going to want to run for office mm-hmm. because it really puts you in that position of mm-hmm. scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that pressure going into it? School board is a little bit different. It's nonpartisan, yeah. although it's so interesting because one of the first pe- questions people ask is, well, are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? <laughs> you know, because they really want to understand, well... Maybe that's not true. I would like to tell myself that they really understand, want to understand where you are on the issues, but maybe it's just a matter of, I want to be okay with my assumptions about that party, you know, yeah. but who knows. <laughs> I wrote an opinion article, though, um, in, for the Ahwatukee Foothills, where I talked about autism in politics. So I, and I'll return to the transgender scrutiny, but... Yeah. Um, I've already noticed the propensity to be loyal to a party mm-hmm. without necessarily questioning or saying, is this how I really feel? Yeah. I've noticed the sort of good boy club, you know, that I was like, is it just me? Because I've never been able to get in that club, let alone you know, like, <laughs> have an invite, you know. Yeah. But there are a lot of outside things that I feel is a waste of time. You know, like, why am I going to say something that I don't believe? Why am I going to tiptoe around something when it's just like, no, this is what it is, you know? Right. And, and kind of the idea of that authenticity and that um, integrity mm-hmm. being present. So, I mean, there were, there were probably a few moments where even myself, I was like, ooh, should I say that? Because how is that going to be perceived? And then I was like, no, why do I care about that? I'm going to let people know how I feel about education, how I'm going to be an advocate for students, Mm -hmm. that I value visibility, both being autistic and transgender, and it will fall where it falls. I am thankful for Victory, though. Victory Institute, I'm not, do you know? Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. And they train candidates specifically in the LGBTQ community for political roles. And while school board isn't necessarily like governor some of the other, you know, positions where you might have more scrutiny with the way legislation is now in Arizona, specifically even seemingly targeting LGBTQ, yeah. especially transgender. I did have to wrestle with that for a minute, but I'm like, I'm going to. I am who I am. I've worked really hard <laughs> to now even be perceived as the person that I've always known that I am, you yeah. know, so. Well, and a lot of that stuff at the state level is bubbling up from, from school districts. Mm-hmm. So it, you are kind of throwing yourself into the, the lion's den <laughs> in a real way. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's great. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be said about trans kids being able to see a trans person running for school board. Mm-hmm. But also, being very open about your autism and how that affects the way you communicate about policy, that's something that I think is really just as important, Mm -hmm. too, because, frankly, people are vicious and awful Mm -hmm. to neurodivergent kids, even when they're trying to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really cool to see, you know, here's an adult who's open about it. And to take that lens to policy Mm -hmm. for, you know, the school board's main responsibility are um, policy, so creating policy for the district, um, the budget, and then hiring or firing your superintendent. 
so essentially the five people, we have five at least in our in Tempe Union, want to act as much as one body as possible, which I'm thankful there's five, you know, because then you can disagree with someone on the board, but then the majority, you know. But it's their job to hold the superintendent accountable. You know, the school systems are still in, in a hierarchical system. And yeah. then of course it really does come back to the superintendent and how well they do. Autism, I think, can be a strength in that. (laughs) I love words. I will read every single one of them. I will sit and read. I've read every single piece of legislation, especially um, that affects the LGBTQ community for students in school, or even legislation where they're trying to mandate how a teacher teaches history, what it is that they say. So anything education-wise, like I will be that person who sits down and I read, you know, the (laughs) HB whatever it is, Bill, you know, and I'm very detail-oriented. So I feel like that lens is going to be helpful for those pieces. But then also, thank you for verbalizing that. That understanding that teachers, even though they're well-meaning, can sometimes not understand how to best serve someone yeah. who is autistic, especially if they're high-functioning high and in general education classes, yeah. and that's what I would love to help with. I mean, I know high-functioning is maybe somewhat of an obsolete term, but for people who get categorized that way, mm-hmm. people will just throw anything at you, like... Oh, you can handle it. You can handle it. And you're like collapsing inside, Mm -hmm. but you don't even really know how to show it Mm because you haven't been given room for it. And it's just, if there isn't a good system for it, and for me, I think that's why being homeschooled ended up being very useful is Mm -hmm. I had less of a a box around me Mm -hmm. as a kid. And I think, uh, and I, so I understand too, right now there's a lot, you know, in public school versus charter school going on right now. But a lot of the charter schools or private schools, one of their main functions was to serve people who lived with a disability and or were autistic. So because they can just provide a different structure and and or homeschooling, and I completely agree in a lot of ways it's so helpful. And there isn't anything necessarily wrong with that. But I also feel that public schools can do better, you know, and they should do better so that they can be inclusive. If you have a family who can't afford private school or charter school, they need to be confident that they're, you know, the school is going to be inclusive. It's going to be a safe environment. They're going to still have a teacher that meets their needs, you know. And I think you said it really well earlier that things that make the classroom better for autistic kids make the classroom better for all of the kids. Mm -hmm. But teachers still um, sometimes struggle with that, especially my age or older, Mm -hmm. because the idea of the 504, you know, which is kind of your less restrictive individualized education plan, like an IEP, there are certain things that teachers have to do that are written down, right? So a lot of teachers feel, well, I've got a... uh, 37 kids in my classroom and I've got, you know, five who have a 504, one that has an IEP, which is when the co-teacher comes in and 
it's just a lot to do and I have to still teach my subject, you know, and it's, I think it's really kind of looked at as, it's kind of compartmentalized as it's, well, it's just more work, which is why in teacher trainings or professional developments that I've done, I've taught in a way that would work really well for someone with autism and they love it because I'm like, no, it's actually less work if you teach it this way Yeah, <laughs> because all of your kids are getting served. And, and you don't have to do five different things at the same time. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> correct. Yeah. Do you feel like that kind of thinking about education isn't in the discourse, the, the political discourse as much as it should be? Because I see people getting upset about these really hot button issues mm-hmm. and I don't see a lot of policy conversation around you know, there's conversations about resources and underfunding and teacher shortages, but I, I rarely see it get into the details of like, here's what it's like to be in the classroom. Mm-hmm. It's it's often just very fear driven. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it will. And and I feel with being autistic, with being transgender, with being a teacher my lived experience when someone takes the time to get to know me mm-hmm. is a very powerful way to probably the most effective way for humanity to connect with humanity you know i in the political world especially driven by fear you're exactly mm-hmm. right if someone comes up with an answer i really feel like it kills curiosity oh yeah and it ki- kills that discourse it's like well we can't teach about race inappropriately in school well that must be critical race theory well yeah we can't have that well that's not the answer it's not even what's being done you know like right. wait, what how did you even get there you know but then people are stuck mm-hmm. in that idea and or they just accept it as the answer so and that's what i mean by killing curiosity because if they actually sat down and talked to their kid and were like so how does your teacher address students students who might be non-binary you know do do they ask about pronouns do you observe them using pronouns and really having their child answer like this is how it is and then them kind of having a conversation with the teacher about it rather than just relying on media or other outlets that just you know right but the actual real people and what they're actually doing right right so I'm not sure why that doesn't happen but one of my goals in being more visible is hoping that those conversations can happen and it becomes less scary. And I think curiosity is a risk. If you have an answer, mm-hmm. that's an answer. Mm-hmm. If you're open and you keep things open and something goes wrong, it's hard to back that up. I well, I think that the idea that something might go wrong is exactly why people will stay away from the risk. But whenever I've, and maybe you've experienced this too, like I'll give you simplest example. I went out with uh, my very best friend. We went somewhere for breakfast and they didn't make my eggs the way that I ordered them. Mm -hmm. So I usually, you know, don't like the yolk and runny or whatever. And she said, well, do you want to send it back or do you want to try it? I'm like, mm, I want to send it back because, you know, that's what I, this is the way I like it and yeah. texture thing, whatever. Yeah. And she said, or you could try it. And if you don't like it, then you can send it back because we'd have to send it back anyways, right? So right. I was like, okay, you know, hesitantly putting salt on there, you know, and I tried it 
and it wasn't terrible. And I tried another couple bites and I was like, okay, this is not my preference, but I felt really glad that I tried it because there wasn't any, you know, there wasn't any harm that came of it. Right. Uh, there was a moment where, you know, of discomfort where I'm like, you know, yeah, no, that's kind of gross. I don't prefer that. But there wasn't anything horrible that came of trying. And if you're autistic, you know how much that was, how hard that might have been because, you know, yes. we really have those yeah. ways of just, you know. But I think it's the same when someone tries something new or takes a risk or, you know, to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. What could go wrong? I'm not really sure if there's an answer to that. You know, someone shares a different perspective and then you say, okay, thank you for sharing that. I disagree with you. And this is why, you know, but that ability to listen the ability to take a risk, stay curious and have that conversation. I think all of those are skills and I wish more people would learn them or more people would teach them. I agree. I think we need to wrap up, but sure. what an incredible way to wrap up, really. <laughs> Thanks for being on the podcast with me. Thank you so much for the invite. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks, Thanks so much to Stefan for being my guest on the podcast and to all of you for listening to the show week after week. If you're enjoying it, make sure that you're following the podcast in something like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or my podcast player of choice, Overcast. We've got some great episodes lined up and a good archive on our website, but we're always looking for new guests to interview. So if you're queer and you live in Arizona, please reach out. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.